you, thank Esther. You, thank All you. All yours. Don't disappoint us. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, brother. <laughs> I'm I'm indebted to Robin Perry and then Tony Goldsby Smith for for my being able to come here uh, with my daughter Stacy and. She and I are getting on a plane tomorrow, and we're, we're kind of uh, resentful that we have to do that because we've had such a good time here. We are, however, going to the Great Barrier Reef tomorrow, so a couple more days in Australia or off Australia, and then we'll be going home. Thank you so much for coming. It's really good to see you all, and um, I know that you have so much to say. I'd love to listen to each one of you, but I, I'm given to the, the task of talking first, so, so I hope it's fun for you. And um, here's the talks as I uh, believe they have been assigned to me in this first hour. Oh, I guess I took that slide away. Uh, an opening uh, talk about why we have a crisis of meaning in the world today, setting up what I think the problem is. And then uh, the second um, talk uh, in particular, we're going to be working through uh, an approach to how knowing works that I propose and uh, I call loving in order to know. <clears throat> we get to talk about reality in the third um, se uh, session, and then uh, if you are able to stay into the uh, informal time, I actually brought a, a paper uh, that I gave as a banquet talk a couple of weeks ago at a feast, <laughs> so I'd like to share it again with you um, if you're able to stay. So the first talk this morning, and I hope to, to do this in 45 minutes, is uh, why we have a crisis of meaning in the world today. I think crisis of meaning is a rather popular phrase right now, and people are feeling it, and that's good. And uh, I, it also, for me, is why I'm going to try to persuade you why you, you need to listen to what I have to say and why you need what I call philosophical therapy. So I'll tell you a little bit about me and how, uh, you know, this nice middle-aged and a little bit older lady got involved in philosophy. <laughs> so um, I grew up in a Bible-believing evangelical home, and um, I th knew all there was to know about the Bible, so I thought. And um, I think I was a very merry child. I still am. I'm returning turning more and more to merry child like this. But along about age 13, I started to have these questions. By the way, those are a couple of my stellar students at Geneva College. Um, Sarah, that's Andrew. We were talking about Andrew yesterday. So, Andrew's in film, you guys. Um, in any case, one question I had was, how do I know that God exists? I knew I was supposed to believe what the Bible said, but I had this additional question about how do I know that God exists? And then the other one I had was, how do I know that you exist? Because I had this presumption that the only body of knowledge I was clear on was what was inside my head ideas in my mind. That's ridiculous, I know, but it is Cartesian. If you happen to know Descartes, I think, therefore, I am. But because I had ideas in my mind, precisely because I had them, they were blocking reality from me, which is just the modernist problem, as we'll talk about it this morning. So, so the problem, th that whole approach that whole way of seeing things, nobody ever taught me that. I didn't hear it at church. I didn't hear it at school. I would like to suggest it was in the water or in the air, philosophically, that the problem wasn't me. It wasn't sin. It was epistemology and metaphysics, too. We'll talk about those 
areas, and what it was was implicit but dominant philosophical commitments that effectively define the modern age, and I'll be defining the modern age too. So this was kind of the beginning of my philosophical quest. It took me a few years to find out that the questions were philosophical, then a few more years to find out you could study philosophy, and then a few more years, maybe a couple of decades, to find out you have the same problem as I. So it's just not me. So I have gotten into what I call epistemological therapy, and here are some of the parameters of, of what I'm going to say to you. Uh, uh, I start from this, that everybody is philosophical. So there's really one thing that you need to be philosophical, and that's to be born. It's essential to being human to be philosophical. All you need to do is go home and look at your dog and realize that he is in no way philosophical. He is not asking, what does it mean to be canine? But you ask every morning, <laughs> what is the meaning of humanness as you get up and get dressed? It can, be, it can be that way. Now, here's another trick. We're born into the modern Western age. I'm presuming that that's the case for you all in a, in a good measure. And uh, the trick is that part of that milieu, that philosophy, is an anti-philosophy philosophy. So that's contradictory, of course. But because the modern age, as we'll say, exalts utility um, and mastery over nature, philosophy, along with other things, has been marginalized, which means that people, I think, are being deprived of their philosophical birthright. And you've inherited philosophical baggage that I think is messing up every area of life. So it goes for philosophical therapy. Sorry, my nose runs when I talk. And we all need this. So my job is to try to make all this, uh, like to collar you with all of this, to say this is for you. It's for me, it's for you too. It shouldn't be just the rock musicians that do philosophy in the streets. We Philosophy needs to be in the streets for all of us. So I'm going to presume that you don't know much about philosophy which may or may not be true, but even if you do, the lovely thing about philosophy is it's always about beginnings, and the beginnings are the best part. And um, that's not frustration, but it's exuberant joy as far as I'm concerned. So here are the questions that you live with every step that you take, whether you've had a philosophy course or not. Bottom left corner, what is the meaning of humanness? We call that philosophical anthropology. Um, that's all about who I am and what is my purpose in life, the meaning of life. Bottom right is about reality. What is reality? Here's one version of the question. Why is there something rather than nothing? I love that question. Might be why I'm a Christian. <laughs> but in any case, then you see philosophizing is about you relating to the world in a, in a very fundamental way. It's about something that's very fundamental that plays out through everything that you say and do and all the work that you do and your worship as well. And that involves, relating to the world involves understanding it, so that would be knowing. How is it that we know what is true? And then action, what is right and good and beautiful. So there's this, uh, this reciprocity of you relating to the world, making sense of it, responding to it. And it's a deep level, fundamental orientation to the world. And it just permeates everything. When I figured out what philosophy was, it seemed obvious to me that I had to study it because it was so fundamental and had to do with everything else. 
So to make that point, here's a definition of epistemology as how we know what we know. And uh, this is a quote from an education guru in the U.S., Parker Palmer, and this is just one thing he says about epistemology, effectively that its patterns play out as patterns of our lives. So the shape of our knowledge becomes the shape of our living. The relation of the knower to the known becomes the relation of the living self to the larger world. (laughs) Okay, so this is to say that questions about knowing are going to play out all through your life because your life is a fabric of knowings. Right? So uh, your approach to knowing is going to impact everything else. Now here's a, a um, aphorism. I love aphorisms. I love to frame them, you know. Uh, that's why I like PowerPoints. But um, this uh, kind of gets at the, the, the flavor and essence of philosophy for me. And uh, this, is, this is the way it ought to be, I think. So this is from G.K. Chesterton. He says this at the beginning of his book, Orthodoxy, about his book, but also about philosophers, and I've just argued that we're all philosophical. So this at least seems to me the main problem. How can we contrive to be at once astonished at the world and yet at home in it? So I love to think about astonished belonging, and that is our privilege in this world. So, so um, keep that in your mind as uh, we move forward. However, astonished belonging has been alienated in the modern West. Okay, So there's these hidden presumptions about knowing that actually thwart our knowing. So it gets in the way of our knowing well. That obviously has a business uh, side of it, but it, it impacts athletics It impacts counseling. Uh, You could go on every area. It plays out in that, and it thwarts uh, much of what we do. You may not have thought about it, but you may have felt it. And so you can feel it in every area of your life, really. And I would like to say philosophy is something that you feel and you wear. And... um, and so if there's something gumming up the works, it's, it's almost your body that may know about, know about it before your, before your head does. So I would like to propose in my looking at how people generally think about knowing that there's a paradigm that's implicitly installed in these prevailing winds, and I'm going to call it at this point the, the uh, knowledge as information mindset. I call it that in my book, Little Manual for Knowing. In the big, fat, loving to know, I call it the defective epistemic default. But if you were to ask your neighbors what they thought knowledge was, not what they took to be true, but what kind of thing, what kind of animal knowledge is, I bet lots of them would say knowledge is information, that it's facts. That it, and we tend to think that it's propositions, statements that are explicit and exact. We tend to think that knowledge is something that you can add up in a linear way. You can collect it, and your goal is to collect it all. <laughs> all right, so our goal, our reason for living is comprehensive information. Uh, we tend to think it's impersonal, meaning uh, it would be bad if it were personal because that wouldn't be knowledge. And... Um, then we also privilege the bits. So we're big on analysis, big on getting down to the nuts and bolts of something and splitting things down to that. And then we feel like we've got a handle on the knowledge. And what's our goal besides comprehensive information? It's power. And as 
uh, Descartes said, and Francis Bacon also, Bacon, knowledge is power, and Descartes said this is for human mastery over nature. Okay, so control, and when you get down to the little bits, they're very transferable and commodifiable and accessible, and um, we're ambivalent about whether we need the world there or not, and if we think it's there, it's kind of meaningless and indifferent, and we collect the information and we do with it what we want, and uh, or we don't really need it, we just construct reality as we see it. Knowledge is information mindset. Nothing wrong with cell phones. Let me just say that. Might have a problem with atom bombs. Scantrons, oh my gosh, who, who likes scantrons? I don't know. But in any case, presumably the, the machine that you feed them into. All right, another way of diagnosing this defective epistemic default or this implicit mindset is to see that most people would also make these uh, either ors. Okay, and I call it a daisy because I want you to take the, the, these um, words in the, this column and stick them all in the center of the daisy. I'm going to give you a second column and all of those are going to go out on the pedal. And that's my getting at the idea that the, the words in the middle, that we, we associate them all with each other and we set them over against the ones on the pedals and generally we say yay about the ones in the middle and boo about the ones out on the pe pedal. So if you know the language of privileged and delegitimated, <laughs> so w that's Meek's yay and boo. And um, so what I want to say is, and think about this, a lot of people think this way, knowledge is uh, set over against belief. Facts are set over against values or interpretations or opinions. Here's one that I think uh, messes with anybody who wants to love Jesus. Reason is set over against faith. And we just presume if it's reason, it has no faith in it, or if it's faith, it has no reason in it. Science as over against art. Science as over against re religion or authority or tradition or even imagination. Uh, we don't, well, we do oppose theory to application, but we tend to think, well, you've got to have the theory first and then you have the application. So it's a one-two step. So you hear the daisy language in that. We oppose objective to subjective. Do you see how this goes? So, you know, present company accepted. I, I, you know, I think lots of people have thought that this approach to knowledge is male and that the female is out on the pedals. Okay. Now, what if you happen to be a female? That can be a bit of a problem. Or what if you happen to be a female lawyer? <laughs> right? So it gets complex. What, what if you happen to be an artist? And you can't help yourself. You've got to be an artist. You may just, uh, you know, settle for being, for life out on the pedal, which is, I, I think we all run into this daisy. I'm not saying you think this way. I'm thinking, I'm saying a lot of people think this way. And we're all affected by it. So this is what I take to be the modern age's implicit but dominant epistemology. And it really defines what the modern age is. What is the modern age? Well, you look it up on Google, it says a, a time period beginning in the 17th century till now, uh, which rejects traditional values to exalt the new, the now, and the future. 
It's decidedly Western. It's decidedly post-Christian. And I would say it's only growing more strident. The yay words would be power, master, uti- mastery, utility. Here's the boo words. Wonder, reality, philosophizing, beauty, just to name a few. That's modernity. I would say there's fallout from this. This is what's gumming up the works of our lives and wreaking havoc. I think that my adolescent onset skeptical questions just were a product of the modern age, and I didn't know it. And I think people run into that all the time. I think that the modern age is is essentially atheistic. If you're cutting off reality, that includes God, right? Uh, Secularism, how about the bits? Compartmentalization, fragmentation. This is intrinsically disembodied. Knowledge is intrinsically disembodied. Uh, In modernity, I think more and more people are checked out. They're absent. They're disconnected from the real, and they're not even present in their own bodies. Uh, This goes on. I think abuse, there's an abuse dynamic just kind of embedded in this. It's depersonalizing. You could go on, right? Lots of things to talk about here. All that, those things in the the colored box just uh, come nowhere on the radar of what we generally think knowledge is. We tend to think responsibility has nothing to do with knowledge. You know, you you get the knowledge and then you have to decide, you can decide whether to be responsible about it or not. But that responsibility would be essential to knowing. We just, we don't think that way. Where wisdom goes in the defective epistemic default is your guess as well as mine. It's not just epistemic, it's metaphysical too. Metaphysics is the word that has to do with things related to reality. And even with the knowledge as information mindset, I was talking about bits, right? Reducing to bits. So reductivism is a metaphysics that says what is really real is the bits to which we reduce everything. So here's my favorite philosopher of the 21st century. He is amazing, David Schindler. And he's my friend now. (laughs) Um, But uh, he writes this in his book, Love in the Postmodern Predicament, that a crisis, that there's a crisis in contemporary existence, which he calls and diagnoses a loss of a sense of reality. And this will inevitably entail a dissolution of the self. Um, What I didn't bold there is what I really think and then found out that David does too, and that is that to be human is to to have a desire for intimacy with the real, to be ordered to, that means that's our purpose, communion with reality, knowing and cultivating it. Here's Mako Fujimura, and from his book Culture Care, which I really like and have taught and used a lot. These are his boo words. Pragmatism, utilitarianism, commercialism, the transactional, commodification, scarcity, in scare quotes, (laughs) reductivism, fragmentation, and he's speaking as an artist. I've heard him describe himself as a misfit, and he looks at this and says, the soil in which I was planted was not the soil I could thrive in. Another artist, Wendell Berry, who's very famous in the U.S. as a farmer, philosopher, literary 
writer, so he's got this Port William membership series of uh, novels about uh, farmers in a community kind of uh, trying to hold back the ties of modernism. Remembering is my favorite one in uh, that series. And um, in remembering, these are words that are Barry's boo words, right? These, these are, these he aligns, this is modern, and this is not what we want. Nasty. I have a paired slide to that later on. Is there a Protestant Christian epistemic default? And this is where I get really glad I'm going on the airplane and going home, and I'm going to leave you guys to duke it out about this. But uh, I would humbly suggest that Protestant modernism has gotten in bed with the modern age. And so we have privileged Christian information. We actually want to die so that we'll have all the Christian information finally. But we privilege propositions and sermons and Bible studies and conferences. Here we are. Uh, apologetics. And, and I would suggest that this is a Protestant Christian modernism. With the daisy, there's, there's a daisy language that goes on. Yay to this, boo to this. Uh, we're sh not sure what side of the reason faith thing we're on. Uh, we generally think we've got to get the information first and then we apply it to our lives. And here's the, the, the thing that blows me away. Uh, as a child believer, I know that Jesus is the answer, right? Well, if you start talking about your relationship with Jesus, that's pedal talk. It's out on the pedal. Well, Jesus is the answer. What, so what is he doing on the pedal? And uh, what's wrong with this daisy? That's the the question. We're div we divorce. We seem to say, yay, absolute truth, boo, relativism, as if that's everything outside of whatever absolute truth is. This leads to culture wars. It leads to spiritual abuse. Uh, I know I'm, I'm, you know, raising things for you to talk about. So do you know Leslie Newbigin, famous missiologist after decades of service as a missionary in India? famous book that he wrote when he came home to England and realized that England was no longer his ideational home. And as a missiologist, he started raising the question, well, how do you communicate the gospel to the modern West? And he said, something is stopping the ears of Western culture so that people in the West cannot even hear the gospel. And he diagnoses the ear stopper as epistemology. David Kettle, I think, was an Australian. I know so little about him, except that Robin Perry edited this book, too. And this is a phenomenal book. Uh, David talks about the theoretical paradigm. That's his word for what I've been talking about. And in modern society, he says, a theory of knowledge has established itself that turns theoretical knowledge into a paradigm for all knowing, including in an act of logical inversion knowledge of God. According to modern thinking, value can be separated from fact and is subjective and private. The idea has subverted the exploration of reality at the level of our deepest and most lively personal engagement with the real. Modernist epistemology, he says, has domesticated the church. And this is the winter of Western Christianity. 
from Walter Brueggemann, whom you might know in this book, Truth Telling as Subversive Obedience. He says, a, subst a substantive decision is required of us, for modernity has eroded even our readiness to hold to the miraculous scandal, by which he means the resurrection. He says, the matters of life and faith, however, cannot be expressed in the tongues of modernity, for its technical epistemology, incapable of doxology, has consigned us to death and despair. How does that come to expression in our lives? So these are some people that I have, know and have worked with. So Sarah is an actor and she struggles with her Christianity. Right now she doesn't exactly have Christianity. When you ask her what happened, she said, at church, when I went to church as a child, I heard deeply powerful words read indifferently. I couldn't tolerate the mismatch. I'll tell you about Alex, who actually isn't in the class at the time because he wasn't there. <laughs> uh, he spoke about a this kind of getting at the generation gap. When he, taught, when he heard this, he said, this is my father's Christianity, and it's killing me. And then I'm very attached to three of these four young men. Um, I had them as students, and um, I may be the only philosopher that has an indie rock album named after me. <laughs> And so if you want the indie rock version of Covenant Epistemology, it's out there. Uh, and so uh, this is from the band called Esther. <laughs> and, and you can hear that these guys, oh, and there's one called the Copperhead. If you've read Longing to Know, there's a Copperhead in there. But uh, uh, these guys sound to me like they're asking my 13-year-old questions. They were freaked out because they didn't feel contact with reality. So why does all this matter? Well, I think a dominant damaging paradigm has hijacked our knowledge and disconnects us from the real. And this is in every arena of life and work, and it's contributing to our crisis in meaning. And I would also say many churches have imbibed the modernist model of knowledge. The gospel has been eviscerated. The church has been domesticated, and mission has been distorted. So, we need to replace modernism. With what and how? And here's the trick. If you happen to have been living in a culture in the center of the daisy, what are your alternatives? Petals. Marginalized petals. And so, there may be some people that just exalt the petals. But the problem is the daisy. We need to get rid of the daisy. We need to, well, I love to mix metaphors. Well, it's not that I love to, it's just I can't help myself, I'm sorry. We need to torpedo the daisy. <laughs> That's the end of my first talk, but it's time for you to talk. So here's what I would like to do. I, I would like to convene you in threesomes, because I think threesomes are cool. And um, I call these hospitality threesomes because what I would like is if you are a twosome or you have somebody here who's a friend, 
you can uh, start a group with that, but then you need to exercise hospitality to invite somebody who's a onesome here by themselves to come and join you. So that's why I call these hospitality threesomes. So the first thing that we're going to do is uh, uh, convene those, and then what you want to do is sit down and introduce yourselves all around and then talk about these questions. What is your experience with the knowledge as information mindset? Where do you see its impact and baggage? And how does this lie at the root of a crisis in meaning? Now, a, a word of warning to my wonderful, gorgeous technology and tech guys. Um, I might be shouting to get them to get quiet at some point, so I don't want to blast out your whatever. So will you please do that? Everybody stand up. And then uh, uh, arrange your threesome. If you can't quite, really do try for a threesome. But if you can't manage it, I guess we'll settle for a foursome or two twosomes. Hospitality. Get to know each other. And then respond to those questions. All right, so go. Raise your hand. Call it out so it can be heard by the ambient mics. Yes. My name is Red Alexander. Reflected on the way that the experience of knowledge as information mindset affects um, his experience of Bible study at church because all you hear about is the get the theology right. Um, so like chapters 1 to 3 of Galatians or Ephesians or whichever and then the other stuff you never get to. <laughs> True. <laughs> Good. So everybody heard that? So problems in Bible study with getting all the information and never getting to the stuff on the, on the pedal. Go. Uh, my new acquaintance, Caroline, um, is a doctor, and she was sharing a story recently how a drug company came and uh, asked them to put in all this clinical data, which resulted in an impersonal SMS going out to all these patients who then bombarded the practice with anxious worry that they could possibly have eternal illness. And Carolyn's response was, I would have never sent the SMS. <laughs> as helpful as the data may have been, uh, I want to care for my patients holistically because they are mothers, brothers, fathers, sons, people. And so they have... Maybe the rest of us want to go too. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, as a result, the community had an anxiety crisis as a result of obtaining a particular form of knowledge. I'm glad you said that, too, because I think the meaning crisis is one of anxiety as well. Very good. Another group. Yeah. Um, so my, my new friend, uh, Susanna, um, um, is a librarian here, actually, and, um, and she's saying that, like, for in the library, yeah, knowledge, yeah, is uh, well, the difference between knowledge and information, and um, she said that information has got inform and that inform can come from many different avenues and um, okay, so it's not just as we're just head knowledge but it's yeah there's multiple inroads. My not so new friend because he's my son James <laughs> who's a researcher in the neurospace and I'm a lawyer decided that while I could relate entirely to almost everything you said, he did not, which perhaps reflects on the research perspective from which he comes. 
do you feel, if I may ask, do you feel like you're in, uh, on a pedal, or do you feel like you've torpedoed the daisy? <laughs> I would say, I think, I might just do it, torpedoed the daisy. I, I find that a lot of these things do work um, together, and some may come out more often when needed, but ultimately they kind of together, not like what I want. Yeah. So you, you might be like my student Alex that says, <laughs> modernist epistemology is my father's Christianity. <laughs> not to put you on the spot or anything, but that's really lovely. So, another group. We'll hear from two more, and then we'll wrap up. Yeah. Hi. Uh, my new connection with Jonathan uh, was really interesting in that he put to us that he has been a maths teacher and has liked maths, but feels school curricula has taken all of the, my word, beauty out of it, um, and therefore has never taught maths teaching because he can't do I'm going to repeat that so that you all hear it. So her friend Jonathan uh, is, has been a math teacher, and uh, you don't say the S in the U.S., so maths teacher, and uh, found that the uh, curriculum took the beauty out of math so much so that, that he no longer teaches math. So that sounds like a crisis, too. One more. Please. If, if I, I wasn't in a group, but may I just make a comment? Is that okay? I withdrew myself because I've been listening to you all week and I've um, enjoyed it thoroughly. I want to just put another dichotomy on after listening to you all week. Um, convenience versus hospitality. I think the modernist world is all for convenience. And I maybe reflect actually on, believe it or not, the toileting arrangements here at the school where every toilet, whether it be male or female, is set up so it can be a female toilet. There are no urinals at PFCC. <laughs> well, because it is, it is so that it can change, you understand? So that it is always hospitable towards the girl who is at the heart of the school. You can see that? And I think that is, um, that is a very interesting framework. It might not have happened purposefully, but it's an interesting thing to think about. Would you give us one more sense about that? Well, I, um, I worry that the West is making everything about convenience, and that is the war against nature. And by making everything about convenience, then we actually degrade nature, because my convenience to have a cup or whatever for 30 seconds is more important than anything else as opposed to hospitality towards nature, towards each other. Yeah, hospitality is a word that's not on the daisy. No, but I want to put it, I want to put it, um, well, I, I think it can be on the on the petal. Well, I would like the torpedo of daisy. No, no, but I, 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 I think hospitality, so I well, well hosp, no, okay, so hospitality should be the new daisy. Right, yeah, yeah. only not a daisy but something else. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm not exactly sure what it's In our conversation, I had one thing with, on the applications business, uh, which is just it's so tedious in sermons. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> as you know, it's coming and thinking, oh dear me, and it's going to be kind of a flat line, superficial 
connection that generally does violence to the text. But uh, years ago, Mark said something I'll never forget, which I think is really profound, um, related to what we're talking about. He said, application is just the wrong word. What we need is discovery. In other words, I discover God everywhere rather than apply God everywhere. Yeah, and I would say discovery torpedoes the daisy. So really, what should a sermon do? It should show us Christ, and it should be an encounter. Yeah. All right. Well, I'm finished my first uh, session, and you're finished. You're going to be in these groups as we go through the day. Thank you so much for your participation. This is time for a a three-minute break before Sarah comes.